reading Matthew 5, 17 to 26. It says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and, ju- and the judge to the guard and you put in, be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. The Sermon on the Mount in general can feel like you walked in in the middle of a movie. And I was talking about this with Laura this week and, and we were saying it's like you walked in in the middle of the movie. I'm like, who? Who walks in in the middle of a movie anymore? I mean, honestly, I can't remember the last time I went to a movie. It's more like watching a show with somebody who's already watched like five seasons of it, and then you're watching it. And this happened this week. Laura was watching an episode of The Blacklist with me. Don't judge me. I love that show. And it was like, I'm in season eight, so there's a lot that's happened. And about 10 minutes in, Laura says, who's the old guy? And I was like, Laura... This is Raymond Reddington. He is the concierge of crime. He's the number one on the FBI's most wanted list. He's the baddest dude on the planet. You've got to know who Raymond Reddington is. He's not just some old guy, which by this point we had missed so much that we just ended up watching Great British Baking Show instead. <laughs> but sometimes you open your Bible, you start into something, especially this passage, and you feel like this, there must have been something that's happened before this, and I'm not really understanding the characters, and the movements. And when you open this passage, Jesus starts out by saying, don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. In fact, one of the 4th century commentators named John Chrysostom, who's known as Chrysostom because it means golden-mouthed. In his own lifetime, people started calling him that. That's what a great preacher he was. John Chrysostom starts his sermon out saying, who brought this up? Who charged Jesus with this? It's like Jesus saying, hey, in case you were wondering, I did not come to abolish the law. Okay, excellent, Jesus. But who thought that you were going to do that? Who was charging you with this? And all of a sudden you realize there's a history here, there's a background here that we need in order to understand where Jesus is coming from in this part of the sermon. In fact, these verses 17 through 20 are the theme section of the Sermon on the Mount. And it's answering an age-old question that every Christian in some form or another has probably wondered, what is our relationship with the Old Testament? 
When I read in my Bible reading plan the book of Leviticus, am I supposed to be following these laws? Am I supposed to just think, wow, they lived really differently back then? Am I supposed to cancel the crawfish broil that we're having this weekend or stop wearing polyester blends? I was about to boil a goat in its mother's milk. But now that I've read this, I'm not going to do that. What is the role when you read the Old Testament law? And what is our responsibility as Christians with what God had commanded Israel to do and not do? Well, in order to understand what Jesus is saying and how he's going to navigate the law and the new kingdom of God, you have to go back to season one. Adam and Eve, in season one, episode one, are the standard for how our relationship with God is supposed to be. That walking with them in the garden knowing each other intimately, talking with God, living in his paradise, and expanding that to the ends of the earth. That's the way God created us to function. But in episode two, things take a dramatic twist. And they sin, and they get expelled from the garden. And in fact, everything from that moment until now has been God's long plan of reopening and redeeming the relationship with his people. In fact, you could summarize the entire Bible with this one storyline, paradise lost, paradise regained. God's people separated because of sin, God's people reconciled because of Christ's work on the cross. So what God did was he started to tell his people what it looks like to live with him in their midst. Since now they've been cast out from the presence of God, And God has decided that he is going to dwell in the ways that he is willing with sinful people through a temple, through sacrifices, through Christ himself, through his spirit. We need to understand how to dwell with God in our midst. We need to relearn what it's like to have the relationship that Adam and Eve had. So beginning with Adam and Eve and then continuing through Noah and Abraham and Moses and all throughout history, God has been telling his people, here's how you should live to have a relationship with me. And throughout time, God has gotten more and more specific about how he wants his people to live. You know, when Noah comes off of the ark, God gives him very general guidelines. Don't kill anybody. Don't eat certain kinds of foods. But otherwise, use your best judgment. Well, it turns out people weren't very good at using their best judgment. And so after that, he decides, okay, I've got to get more specific. Don't do this and this and this. And when you do those things, you need to make restitution this way. You need to seek forgiveness this way so that by the time you get to Moses, now all of a sudden we've got 613 specific things that will guide you to have a good relationship with God. But all the while, God has been doing basically the same thing. It's like when you have kids, when kids are younger, you assume that their judgment is not quite calibrated for you to be able to say, make good choices. So you give specific commands. You don't leave much up to chance. But if you're still doing that when they're teenagers, you're thinking to yourself, why don't they start to understand this? Right? Part of the process of maturity is not just being able to follow the rules, but being able to understand and make your own decisions about how to live your life. And so as time goes on and things get more and more specific, Jesus is now going to pull things all the way back and say the heart of what God has always been after is guiding you to have a relationship with him. 
let's pull all the way back for a minute and say, what was God's in original intention? To dwell with his people forever. That's what God's been up to. And we, not just individually, but as a human race throughout history, have needed God's very specific guidance to figure out how to do that. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is putting two things in juxtaposition. On the one hand, don't think that I've come to abolish the law. The law is a faithful, trustworthy expression of God's design for a relationship with him. These are rules that are not just arbitrary. It's not like God just decided one day, I'm going to make them do this because it would be kind of miserable. His commands, the New Testament tells us, are for our good. They are for a good relationship with him. So on the one hand, Jesus is saying the law is not worthless. God wasn't kidding when he said, these are the ways that you conduct yourself to have a relationship with God. But on the other hand, he's now going to teach in such a way to go all the way back to the beginning and say, but don't forget what the law is all about. In Jesus' day, you had people who had gotten so obsessed with the law that they thought keeping the law was the point. Keeping the law, the law is not the end goal. Keeping the law is an avenue to the end goal, being with God, being restored to him, being redeemed. And so Jesus is going to do something really brilliant in the Sermon on the Mount. He's going to say, on the one hand, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. What do we mean by fulfill? When Jesus uses this word in the Sermon on the Mount, he's talking about living up to the standard of the law and the prophets. That Jesus in his own life is like a representative of humanity. He is the perfect example of Israel. He is the perfect example of humanity. Not just in that he abides by the law, in that he abides by the heart of the law, which is he has a perfect relationship with his father. In our Bible reading time right now, Laura and I are in the book of John. If you remember in John 14 through 17, Jesus is giving some farewell advice to his disciples. And one of the things he keeps coming back to is, my prayer for you, especially in chapter 17, my prayer for you is that you would be in me like I am in my father. And the relationship that my father and I have between the two of us that is perfect and loving and joyful, I want you to have that relationship. I want you to be reflective of what you've seen in me. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to give us wise teaching, not to abolish what God has said before, but to encompass what God has said before, to live up to what God has said before. Now, here's the kicker. At the end of this first passage, again, this is the theme. 17 through 20 is the theme of the whole sermon. In verse 20, he throws a real zinger. Because up until this point, you could think this is just a polemic against the Pharisees. The Pharisees are self-righteous on the outside. They're good at keeping up appearances, but they are dead on the inside. Right? Jesus, he describes them as whitewashed tombs. They are clean and well-presented on the outside, but inside they are dead. They are full of dead bones. They have the external part right, but they have no internal part. You might think that the Sermon on the Mount is just a polemic against them, except Jesus says this, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you are even more righteous than the Pharisees, you don't have a chance getting into heaven. Sometimes we put on kind of Christian goggles and we read this and we say, well, it'd be easy to be more righteous than the Pharisees. Those are the bad guys in the Gospels. 
But if you were a first century Jew or Greek who lived in this area, the Pharisees were the standard, right? In fact, if we were to lay down our track record, even the best among us, you grew up in church, you got all the Awana badges, you gave your life to Christ before you can even remember back then, and you always were a goody two-shoes, you never did anything wrong, you have been lapped so many times by the Pharisees in righteousness, it is not even funny. They had the Bible memorized. They had worshiped all day, every day. They tithed, they fasted two days a week. They even in their herb gardens, they would cut off little one-tenth pieces of their mint and their cumin and their dill, and they would give that at the temple because 10% of everything to God. I mean, these guys were unbelievable in terms of outward righteousness. So if it's a standard for us of your righteousness must exceed the Pharisees, and it, what we're talking about is works, there is no chance. I mean, you hear people talk today about being a good person. I just want to be a good person. I want the good to outweigh the bad. I just want to get to that 50.1%, and then that will be good because the scales will be tipped. Look, the Pharisees weren't worried about 50.1%. They were like, are we within the rounding error of 99.9% good things? Or are we at 99.8% good things? For Jesus to say, your righteousness must exceed them, is the highest moral bar that they could conceive of. But there must be something going on here. One of the commentators puts it this way. To speak of a righteousness which goes far beyond that of the scribes and Pharisees might seem to be an impossible, even ridiculous ideal. As long as righteousness is understood in terms of literal obedience to rules and regulations, it would be hard to find anyone who attempted it more rigorously and more consistently than the scribes and the Pharisees. The paradox of Jesus' demand here makes sense only if the basic premise as to what righteousness consists of is put in question. Jesus is not talking about beating the scribes and Pharisees at their own game but about a different level or concept of righteousness altogether. Jesus has taken what has become an overblown, man-centric, external body of rules, and he has wiped off the entire table to say, righteousness is about your relationship with God in your heart. Righteousness is that original ideal in the garden. Do you know him? Do you walk with him? Do you have barriers in between you and him of sin in your life? Are you reconciled to him? Are you on mission for him? Are you taking the glory of God that you have experienced and expanding it on mission across the whole earth? That is really what it means to be righteous. So what we see is the word righteousness, while to us it sounds like a big theological word, it sounds like something that must have a technical meaning, the word righteousness is very simple. To be righteous means to have a redeemed relationship with God through Christ. That's it. That's what it means to be righteous. And if you do that, your actions, as, as Jesus is going to teach in this sermon, your actions will then become righteous. So here's the paradox. It is impossible to do the external actions and become righteous. You can do all of the external things, and you can look great to other people and completely miss the heart of the law. But it is impossible to be righteous in your heart and not be righteous in your life. That's the paradox of what Jesus is saying. If you spend all your time trying to be righteous externally, you will never achieve it. 
But if you get the relationship with God right in your heart, if the Spirit is in you and it is creating a new person and you are walking with him each day, it will be impossible for you not to live in a righteous way. This theme of righteousness throughout the sermon is eye-opening when you start to see it. If you were to go through and just underline every time Jesus says this in Matthew, and especially in the Sermon on the Mount, you would see him say things like, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Not hunger and thirst for the law, per se, hunger and thirst for God. And not just, I have a preference to do the things of God, it is my food, it is my drink, it is my sustenance to be reunited with God. He says in chapter 6, verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, right? This is like where everybody's voice trails off. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek his righteousness. Seek that kind of relationship. And all of these things, all the things he's been talking about, daily sustenance, satisfaction, freedom from anxiety, freedom from anger, freedom from strife, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and these things will all be added into your life. 520, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, unless you go beyond the surface level action trying to please God, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So what Jesus is going to do after making this statement, he's going to give us six examples of how to live this way. Here's, here's, and this is where Jesus is such a master teacher. He doesn't leave it up at the abstract, like, okay, just chew on that theologically for a while. He's going to say, let's get serious about the things that come between us and God. Let's get serious about the things that are barriers to righteousness. What are the things that stand in the way of that kind of relationship with God? And I love where he begins. He says, in all of these, he, he, he has a pattern. He says, you've heard it said, and he's going to quote something from the law, and usually he's going to bring into that quotation what people have added to the law over time. Because the Pharisees were experts at building up all kinds of things on top of the law so that you couldn't even see the law anymore. All you can see is the tradition of man. And he's going to say, you've heard it said this, but I say this, and here's how to do it. That's how all these examples, it's anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, loving your enemies, all six of these examples. You've heard it said, and I say to you, and here's what you should do about it. And Jesus decides, what better place to start? What are the barriers between us and God? Well, why not start with murder? That's a pretty easy one. Murder is one of those things that stands in the way of true righteousness. And everybody's like nodding their head. They're like, yes. Absolutely. And it's so much so that it's still a cliche in our day when you've done something wrong. You're like, it's not like I murdered somebody. It's not like I killed someone. That's like the high bar. And she's like, let's just start with the highest bar possible. Let's just start with murder. You have heard it said, do not murder. And everybody felt great about themselves, except for maybe one or two people there. But everybody felt great. Okay, that's a pretty, that's a pretty easy thing to get over. It's the sixth commandment of the Ten Commandments. Do not murder. And most Israelites were like, I got that. This is great. And then Jesus begins to turn the tables. You've heard it said, do not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Everybody's shaking their head. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Okay, that just got a lot harder and more inclusive. Everyone who is angry angry with murderous intent in their heart is going to be liable to judgment. Now we need to do a little bit of background work. Again, this is where if you've, if you've seen the previous seasons, you bring something to this text that you need. 
the, in the Ten Commandments, there's a command not to murder, which is a different command than do not kill. And you may have studied this before. In the context of the law, they actually did impose capital punishment. So it would be very contradictory for God to say, do not kill as one of the Ten Commandments. It's do not murder. And we can make a distinction between murdering and killing in the Old Testament law. Jesus is doing something very similar here because immediately your ears perk up and you say, do not be angry. And that's the same as murder. I thought it was okay to be angry. Jesus is angry. He goes and turns all the tables over in the temple and he basically takes these cords and makes them into a whip. That's, that's anger right there. And it's righteous because Jesus did it. And there's other passages that say, in your anger, do not sin. So it's possible to have an anger that is not sinful. So in the same way that Jesus is taking this commandment, do not murder, he's saying do not be angry in a specific sense. Do not be angry in line with murder. Do not be angry at the people around you because you have suffered a personal offense. You know, Jesus gets angry several times in the Gospels. He's angry when his father's house is being desecrated and blasphemed. He's angry at death when his friend Lazarus dies. He's angry that the Pharisees are standing in the way of healing this person because of their Sabbath regulations. Jesus is angry many times in the Gospels, but notice he is never angry because of a personal offense. He is never angry because someone did something to him and now he's going to retaliate. In fact, what Jesus gives us a pattern of is when the worst thing is done to him, he is delivered over through a kangaroo trial, and he is slandered, and he is beaten, and he is hung up on a cross, that would be the moment to be very angry. In fact, his followers wonder if maybe this is going to be a moment where he gets angry. They're like, well, maybe he's going to summon down angels and rain down hellfire. And Jesus says, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus models that there are kinds of righteous anger. There are times when we are moved and we are angry over the things of God, but this kind of anger is when your reputation is on the line. Your personal interests have been violated. You have been slandered. And that's the kind of anger that is in line with this murderous intent. He says, you've heard it said, do not murder. But I'm telling you that if you visualize it in your head, it's basically the same thing. You've heard it said, do not murder, but if you just don't have the means or the courage to go through with it, but you think about it all the time, you're in the same category. He says, if you harbor in your heart hatred, that's a great word for this kind of anger, hatred, resentment, bitterness in your heart, it is essentially like you've gone through with it in real life. Now, why is that the case? In our law, we don't treat it this way. In you know, person to person, we don't treat it that way. I've been angry at many people. They didn't treat me like I murdered them. We don't try people for being angry at each other. We try people when they go through with it, when they kill other people. But if you understand righteousness to be your relationship, your heart posture, your devotion to God, anger and bitterness and rage are just as detrimental to the relationship you have with God as if you express it physically, right? What Jesus is saying is to be righteous is to be redeemed, is to be reunited, to be reconciled with God. And hatred and anger and bitterness are things that stand in the way of that relationship. So Jesus is now going to say, if you are even angry enough to curse someone, is the example he gives, that's going to be a barrier to the righteousness that God has been working at this whole time. So then he's going to give us some advice. So he says, if you are 
angry enough to say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So, verse 23, if you are offering your gift at the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. This, Jesus was such a master teacher. This should catch us by surprise. If you're paying close attention to what Jesus has been saying, this is very strange advice. If you are angry, it's usually because someone has done something to you, right? The reason you get angry is because someone, you, someone owes a debt to you. Someone has wronged you. It should say, from our standpoint, what Jesus should be saying here is, don't be angry. So, if someone does something wrong to you, forgive them. That would make total sense in this passage. If someone does something wrong, if you are offering at the altar and you remember that someone did something really mean to you and you are really angry at them, you need to let go of that anger. That's how we teach on anger all the time. That is not what Jesus says. In fact, Jesus' example is exactly backwards. This is so interesting. He doesn't say in the moment that you would be angry. He says in the moment that someone would be most likely to be angry at you, here's what you should do. And in fact, he goes even one step further. This is what is so mind-boggling. It's when you are doing what you should be doing, when you are worshiping, when you are going, and in this context, it would be like, you are going, you have a goat in your hands, it is live, you are taking it up to the priest on the altar, you set it up there, and then you remember, I wronged someone. Leave it there. Let the pigeons and turtle doves fly away. Let the goat run away. Let your sacrifice go. Leave the place where you are doing what God has commanded in worship and go and do the heart work of worship. Reconcile. Be reconciled to the person that has something against you. What Jesus is teaching is there's an inverted relationship with anger. Anger is only solved not through being like it's not a big deal, but by understanding that it is a huge deal. The things that we are angry about are a big deal. You will never get rid of anger in your life if you just decide, I'm just going to let it go. You will get rid of anger in your life when you do this. When you learn how to be forgiven, then anger will run away in your life. What Jesus is saying is the most important thing you can do when you are worshiping is when you remember there's an opportunity that you need to be forgiven when you have something that you have done that's wrong and you start to go and reconcile and seek repentance, that's when the stranglehold of anger begins to leave your life. Here's why that's true. One of the books I was reading this weekend to get an insight into this is a book called uh, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship by Pete Scazzaro. And some of you guys have read Pete Scazzaro's stuff. He's got really good insights. And one of the things that he was saying in this book is, you know, anger and, and many of the flaws that we have are not just a result of being a bad person. They're not just a result of, oh, you were just kind of made that way. They're a result of not seeing yourself correctly. Anger is a referred emotion, right? You don't, you don't just get angry to be angry. You get angry because of something. You're, you know, you have a person that's done something that hurt you. You have been offended. You have been violated in some way. Anger is always because you care about something else. But what he points out is anger is also because you have a blind spot. You do not see yourself in the situation the way that you should, and therefore you get angry. 
And that's where Jesus' teaching blends completely. The way to see yourself the way you truly are is to learn how to be forgiven and to repent. Right, the first place that you do this is with God. That's why this worship example is so interesting is the first thing we should do if we are coming to worship and we realize that it's not a brother who has something against us, it's God that has something against us. Right, this is a rehearsal of the gospel. You can't be a Christian if you don't know how to repent. That is the thing that makes you a Christian is to say, I have sinned, I have violated the law and the honor of a holy God, I have done what he commanded me not to do, I have rebelled against him, I have sided against him, and I have to come and I have to humble myself and ask him, will you forgive me through the blood of Christ? You cannot be a Christian if you haven't done that. The first step into being a Christian is admitting there is someone who has a debt against me. And it is an infinite debt. It is one that I could never repay. And so I must go and bow down before God and say, I confess that I've screwed up, that I have sinned against you, and I need your forgiveness. But the thing is, that doesn't just happen once. That happens throughout your whole life. God forgives you, past, present, and future, and then after that, we don't go and confess to God because we're afraid that God's going to be like, okay, well, you were doing pretty good, I was going to give you salvation, but then you screwed up again, and actually, I've changed my mind, I'm not going to forgive you now. You go and confess when you are a Christian because what sin does after you're a Christian is it stands in the way, it's a barrier between you and God. It's a breach in the relationship between you and God. And so what you do when you confess as a Christian is you go and you say, God, you have redeemed me, you have put your spirit in me, you have paid for my sin, and I can tell that something is taking root that's standing in between me and you, and I don't want that to be there. Forgive me, even though I am a new person, even though I have the spirit, forgive me for still acting like the old me. Please take away this from my life so that there is a clear path between me and you. When you go to offer your gift at the altar, one of the things that should constantly be on our hearts is, do I have things outstanding with God? Do I have a breach in my relationship with God? Because I need to go fix it. I need to be the one who goes, and I need to be the one who bows down and say, Lord, forgive me for the debt that I have racked up with you. Now, Christians aren't just supposed to do that with God and then do whatever you want with everybody else. The heart posture of a Christian is that this would be a way of life for us. Right, the key to being the key to not being angry at God. You know, sometimes we feel angry at God because He hasn't done what we think He should do, or because our life isn't turning out the way that it should turn out. The remedy to that is to understand who God is and who you are. There is nothing in the Bible that would lead us to think there aren't moments where you feel angry at God, but then there's nothing in the Bible that makes us think that that should last very long either. It's like the story of Job. There's all kinds of ranting and raving, and there's all kinds of things said, and then at the end, God answers, and he puts them in their place, and Job says, whoa, now I see. Now my anger has been circumvented, because I see who God is, I see what he's done, and I see who I am, and I see what I have done. And then anger is dispelled. The same thing is true everywhere else. That's what I said, what I love Pete Scazzaro says is, anger is because we don't understand ourselves properly. We get angry at other people because we forget the giant debt that we have been forgiven of. We, in Tim Keller's new book, Forgive, he makes this point, God's mercy must and will make us merciful. If it doesn't, then we never understood the concept of God's mercy 
in truth. The reason that we take slights personally and we harbor anger against other people is we don't realize how much we have been forgiven. So he gives us the sense that if you have something against someone when you're worshiping, that's not just a barrier with them, that's a barrier with God. Deal with the barrier with God and then go and be reconciled. Christians, of all people, should be people who are quick to say, I screwed up, I can't believe I did that, I'm so sorry, would you please forgive me? You can't control if they forgive you, but you can control if you are reconciled. And here's the promise, the brilliance of what Jesus is teaching. Being forgiven will make you into a forgiver. Being forgiven, understanding the mercy of God, understanding the wonderful love of God to restore his relationship with you will infiltrate every single one of your other relationships. So what we do, what Jesus teaches us is not when you're angry at somebody, just decide to grit your teeth and get through it. When you're angry at someone, think about the debts that you have had forgiven for you. See yourself with the other person as a fellow sinner. The key to all of this is understanding where you are and where God is and where the other person is. And then you will become a forgiver. You will become a fountain of mercy. You will become someone who is upholding the law. I want to I close with a thought from the book of Romans where Paul is taking up this same idea in Romans chapter 13 and he gives us a way to put this into practice. He says in Romans 13, 8, Owe no one anything except to love one another. Don't owe anybody anything. Don't let there be any outstanding debts on your part. If you can avoid it, go and be reconciled. Owe no one anything except to love one another for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Has fulfilled the law. Think about how just paradigm shifting this is for the people hearing it. He says, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. The things that Jesus points out in the Sermon on the Mount and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love fulfills the law. Jesus, it's like he's saying, you want to go back? You want to do what God originally commanded? You want to follow the train of God's thought throughout all of the law and all of the prophets? You want to fulfill what God designed you to do? Learn to love one another. Learn to repent. Learn to reconcile. Learn your situation before God and then take that and give it freely to other people. See, here's the thing. At the end of the day, your debt to God that has been wiped clean is greater than anything anyone could ever have against you, no matter how big. And there are big debts that people have racked up against us. But it doesn't compare to what God has done for us in Christ. So Jesus says, you want to fulfill the law, you want to be righteous, you want to have that relationship that God designed you to have, you want to be blessed, like it says in the Beatitudes, learn to be quick to reconcile. You want to see anger and bitterness come out of your life? You want to see relationships restored in your life? Do you want to be free from the self-detriment that anger is in your soul? Go and be reconciled to God, and then go and be reconciled to others. We, as Christians of all people, should take our time of worship and be reminded, is there anybody I need to be reconciled to? Is there any place between God or between another person that I need to be the one who humbles themselves and say, I am so sorry, please forgive me. 
the beauty of how God designs you is that won't just restore that relationship. That will restore the relationship with all the people that are in your life. It will set you free from anger and lust and bitterness. It will allow you to love your neighbor, and it will allow you to have a clear relationship with God. That's righteous living. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you have dealt so kindly with us. You have been so merciful to us. Father, your forgiveness is the most freeing thing in our lives. Father, by your spirit this morning as we worship, I pray that we would be like the person who is at the altar, who's offering a gift, and that you would bring to mind and to our hearts anybody that has a debt against us. Father, there, there might be areas where we just need to sit and pray for a minute and say, God, there's, there's been some anger taking hold in my life, and I want you to free me from it. Father, there's, there's lust that's taken root in our home, and I need you to forgive me, and I need you to free me. Father, there's enemies that are real enemies that I cannot change. But, Father, I need you to help me to love and pray for them. Oh, Lord, there are areas in my life where I'm even ashamed to admit before you what I've done. God, would you give me your comfort and your peace to be able to do that? Father, there's people in here, there's places in our heart where we probably have settled it with you, but we need to make a phone call. We need to send a text. We need to meet with someone. And we need to do the vulnerable, difficult work of humbling ourselves and asking for forgiveness. Father, would you convict us this morning so that you can set us free? Father, would you press our hearts so that we could be open to you? Father, we ask you to do that by your spirit. In Jesus' name. As we stand and begin to worship again, I want us to take a time of responding. Just by yourself in your seat, it could be with your family or it could be with somebody that you need to talk to and you need to step out. But take a moment and don't let the opportunity pass by to settle the accounts that you have in your life. Take a minute and look to God and say, God, I know you've forgiven me for all things, but these things are standing in the way of my relationship with you. Would you forgive me now? Would you get these out of my life? Would you show me the areas and put people on my heart and my mind that I need to do business with? So as Sean plays for us, take a minute to do that. Take a minute to respond. Take a minute to ask God to reveal those areas and then be free. Be free of those things.